This is Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Call the show now at 760-480-8477. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. Now, Scott Clark. It's season four of Office Hours, and we're studying the book of Hebrews. The theme, Jesus is really better. Hebrews was written in the mid-60s of the first century A.D. to a predominantly Jewish Christian congregation that was being tempted to turn away from Christ back to the Old Covenant, back to the types and shadows, and to a rabbinical understanding of the Old Testament. Joining us on Office Hours today are Dr. David Vendrunen, Robert B. Strimple Professor of Systematic Theology and Christian Ethics at Westminster Seminary, California, and Dr. Mike Horton. J. Gresham Machen, Professor of Systematic Theology and Apologetics at Westminster Seminary, California. Mike's latest book is The Christian Faith, A Systematic Theology for Pilgrims on the Way, and David's most recent book is Living in God's Two Kingdoms. These volumes and more are available through the bookstore at Westminster Seminary, California, wscal.edu slash bookstore. Hi, Mike, and welcome to Office Hours. Thanks, Scott. Good to be with you again. And David, welcome back. Thank you. So we're talking about Hebrews 5.11 through 6.12, one of the more challenging passages in an interesting and sometimes difficult book. So I'm glad you two fellows are here to help us work through this. We can see the theme shifting or going back to a theme that's been implied, but now being addressed directly here in Hebrews when the writer says, about this, we have much to say. And it is hard to explain, he says, following the ESV, since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. What's going on here? First of all, the context of the whole epistle is important for everything that we're going to talk about today because the background here is a predominantly Jewish audience trying to convince Jews not to go back into Judaism. Perhaps it was because of persecutions. He does talk about that later in the epistles, showing hospitality to prisoners and those who are showing up on your doorstep under persecution. So, They're being discouraged in their faith. They're encouraged to fall away, to go back to the elementary regime of Judaism. So here they are. The reality has come, Jesus Christ, and they want to go back to the shadows. The whole epistle, as I understand it, is an attempt to recall these Jewish Christians to the fulfillment of the Old Testament rather than reverting back to it. And if we don't understand that context, we're going to make some direct applications that are perhaps not consistent with the text. I think it's also important to note here that there seems to be this connection between their lapsing in the doctrine of Christ and their appreciation for who he is with also this kind of dullness that they have, this kind of spiritual torpor that they're showing. It's not as if these are spiritually alive people who just happen to be maybe getting confused on some doctrines, but their doctrinal confusion is intimately bound up with their spiritual sluggishness. And for the author of Hebrews here, in order to restore their spiritual vigor, he 
has to restore them to these mature doctrines about Christ and his work. And uh, you really can't separate these two things, this orthodox doctrine and this vibrant spirituality that has to accompany it. It's easy for us in our setting in North America to make a distinction that is frequently made between doctrine and practice or between piety and teaching. And this passage seems to push us in a very different direction. So let's try to nail that down a little bit more firmly, because I think what you just said, David, is really important. Well, you have this impression that I think we often have with liberal Christianity, that it basically elevates life or ethics over doctrine, so much so that doctrine tends to just slip off the radar screen. But I think it's also important that we don't go to the other extreme and somehow agree that there's sort of this dichotomy between doctrine and ethics, except that we think that doctrine is important and not ethics. And it's very interesting here that, you know, say in verse 14, the last, the very end of chapter 5, the solid food, which I think he's really thinking of the solid food of doctrine, these things about Christ as the high priest after the order of Melchizedek, these things are for those whose powers of discernment are trained by constant practice to distinguish good and evil. And I think for the author of Hebrews, as with the other biblical writers, there really isn't such a thing as a dead orthodoxy. The idea that yeah, you might have these people running around who are just really solid doctrinally and know everything, and yet they live this terrible moral life. It's the very same spiritual discernment in regard to doctrinal things that also is able to make distinction between good and evil, between the ways of righteousness and the ways of wickedness. And there's really this two-way road between right doctrine and right life. And if you try to jettison one for the sake of the other, whichever it is, it's clearly missing the point of what's going on here and so many other places in Scripture. Well, and there's hardly any grounds for separating life and doctrine when the whole point of this passage all the way to 612 is to challenge the believers, or maybe many of them aren't even really believers at this point, not to fall away. Well, you can't think of anything that is more central to the Christian life than the danger of falling away. He's not just talking about not scoring an A on your exam, your doctrinal exam. He's talking about falling away, and that's why he begins with doctrine, because it is possible for people only to assent to true doctrine and not to truly trust in Jesus Christ and turn from their sins. But it is really impossible for anyone to repent and believe and keep on repenting and keep on believing and live the Christian life without sound doctrine. And it's striking, you know, you hear this all the time. Well, you know, you got to give people milk. Actually, this is a rebuke. (laughs) He's actually saying, uh, well, sure, but by now, you people should be up in front of the class teaching. You people have been on the receiving end of this for a long time. You should be teaching these crazy Gentiles out here. Instead, We've got to go back to basics with you all. He doesn't just say you've got the doctrine, now you need the life. He says you don't have the doctrine, and therefore you're in danger of falling away. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. This language here at the end of chapter 5 puts me in mind of the promise of the new covenant in Jeremiah 31 that the Spirit would be poured out and that there would be a time and the new covenant would be of such a kind that we wouldn't have need. And it's put in prophetic hyperbole, but nevertheless, that we wouldn't have need for anyone to say, know the Lord, for they will all know the Lord. And it seems to me that perhaps the pastor to the Hebrews is working on already some of the themes he's going to get into later on in the sermon or the epistle about the benefits and the superiority of the new covenant. And this is his way of saying, you people really are not 
benefiting from the new covenant in, in a way that you really should, and therefore you lack the basic skills of piety. And he says here, unskilled in the word of righteousness, which is again a reference to, as we've seen in earlier episodes, to the centrality of the word of God in the life of the congregation and the life of the Christian. Yeah, I think that's a good point. And of course, in a couple of chapters, he's going to get specifically to that promise of the new covenant in Jeremiah. But certainly part of his point about the greatness of the new covenant is these doctrinal truths about this better high priest coming. But you're right also about a better moral life, a better religious life that we can and ought to live now. Our worship has been so much more enriched because we're not coming before God with the types and shadows, but we're participating in the reality itself. And certainly our worship ought to be at the center of what our Christian life is. And so I think it's absolutely right, is that the betterness of the new covenant is about life as well as doctrine. Moses isn't coming out of the tabernacle with his face shining. The Holy Spirit has been poured out on the new covenant community. And we're not watching someone go into the Holy of Holies. We're in the Holy of Holies, and we are the holy place. Well, and that's why he he uses throughout the epistle, typical rabbinical way of teaching, if X, then how much more Y? From the lesser to the greater. Yeah, if you have all of this wonder and amazement that you seem to be so obsessed with in Moses, even to the point of maybe going back to the types and shadows, how much more then do we have in Christ? And if the old covenant brought condemnation in terms of being booted out of the typological land, how much greater are the threats of the new covenant being excommunicated from the heavenly city? So in chapter 6, he turns and begins to intensify things. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ, meaning instruction about Christ, and I've always puzzled about that expression, but we'll talk about that. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. Now, just reading that litany, that reminds me anyway of the way the early church formulated the faith. How do you read those verses? Yeah, again, I think it underscores the Jewish audience. (laughs) Gentiles weren't wringing their hands, no pun intended, about washings. It was Jews, along with the question about Jewish ceremonies. There's the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. These are the basic things that we talked about before. Faith towards God, these are the basics of the catechism. And we ought to be able to go on from the basics now. You've been in this for a long time. He says of baptisms, and so it's translated here in the ESV, washings. As I was considering these verses, I was wondering when he says foundation of repentance, that's one of the starting points of the Christian life, right? Faith and a repentance flowing out of faith, recognizing one's sin. So repentance from dead works, they're being tempted to go back to, in a sense, dead works and faith toward God. And pedagogically, the apostles often say repent and believe. And so that language, this order reflects that pedagogical order that we see in the apostolic preaching and then instruction about washings, could that be baptism, initiation into the visible covenant community? Or is it, as Mike suggests, ceremonial Jewish practice, laying on of hands, resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment? Those seem like... Distinctively Christian, or at least Pharisaical. Yeah, I mean, they could be Pharisaical. I mean, obviously, we agree with the Pharisees on those things, but in this context, I wonder if it has a more distinctly Christian cast, but I'm not sure. Well, I wonder if it's really necessary to choose one or the other in in terms of the washings. I would think that the Jewish Old Testament background of the washings is certainly there, but for a Christian audience, not to relate that to baptism as 
the sacrament of Christian initiation into the covenant, I think, has to be right there as part of what he's referring to. Which then would get us to verse 4, for it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance. So this is the reason that the listener is with us today (laughs) listening to this podcast and wanting to know, all right, you hard-nosed predestinarian Calvinists, what are you going to do with this? Because this seems to say you can be a true Christian, have true faith, be regenerate, be in the church, perhaps, depending on how one takes enlightened, and then fall away. It's right there in the Bible. What are you, what are you going to do, uh, Vendronen? You're a systematician. Your job is to make these things go away. What do you do with these hard cases? One thing that's very important, of course, is to read these verses in the broader context. We always say that, but we say it because it's true. Yeah. And certainly you could look at these individual things and think, well, that seems to describe what Christians experience. But I think we have to look both earlier and in what immediately follows. And one of the things that has transpired in chapters 3 and 4, which you've discussed with other guests, is this comparison of this congregation to the wilderness generation that's come out of Egypt and has been tempted and has fallen away into all these egregious sins, and God has said to them, you shall not enter my rest. And what was their problem? Well, their problem was not that they had a kind of a lack of information or uh, all sorts of disadvantages. They had heard the word of God. They had seen his wonders, but they had not mixed it with faith. That word, that Even message the had come to them. That's right. And so we might ask now, is that part of the background for what the author of Hebrews is doing here? And I think one clue that it is, is the remarkable resemblances that his words here have to Nehemiah 9, in which there's these references back to the wilderness generation. And the enlightenment seems to be refer to this pillar of this glory cloud, this tasting of the heavenly gift probably to the manna. And there are probably all of these allusions here to these good things, these truly good things, even eschatological things that this congregation has received that are sort of analogous to what the wilderness generation received. But they have to keep in mind once again is that just because you receive all sorts of genuinely wonderful spiritual blessings, it doesn't mean necessarily that you are a true believer and that your eternal life is assured just because you have experienced these things. I think that's one aspect of how we need to interpret these verses. I never dreamed that there would ever be a crisis on the doctrine of justification among evangelicals since that's what's defined our faith historically. All evangelicals have embraced historically the doctrine of justification by faith alone until now. R.C. Sproul for Westminster Seminary, California. This is the first time in history that I know of professing evangelicals have negotiated that doctrine by entering into unholy alliances with people who categorically reject it. But that's one of the things I love about Westminster Seminary. This is one of the few seminaries in this country that is acutely conscious of this crisis and is zealous to maintain the central importance and essential truth of justification by faith alone. People are always asking me where to go. My favorite seminary in the United States, in the whole United States, is Westminster. Westminster Seminary, California. WSCAL.edu. 888-480-8474. Westminster Seminary, California. For Christ, His gospel, and His church. There were people in Israel who benefited in remarkable ways, who participated in salvation. They went through the Red Sea on dry ground. They ate manna. 
they participated and received literally from heaven all kinds of extraordinary things. And yet, as we've seen in previous chapters in Hebrews, they did not enter the rest. Yeah, and that's why I think, first of all, before you hunt down the meaning of each of these words, it's important to have three buckets here because there really are only three major interpretations that I have come across, at least, of this passage. One is the eternal security position, which is basically that once you've said yes to Jesus, he's stuck with you. Now, that's a pejorative way of putting it, but basically interpreting this passage as purely hypothetical. There are no people of this kind, but it's a warning. Then you have the Arminian view, and it's not only Arminians who hold this, it would encompass a whole chunk of Christendom, including Roman Catholics and others. Federal visionists. Right. Various and sundry neonomians. And it's basically the view that people can lose their salvation. So they're really, truly saved. They're in Christ. They're regenerate. They're justified. They're made alive by the Spirit. Yep accepted as righteous with God at one moment, and then because of their refusal to either cooperate with grace or do whatever is required of them, they lose that status such that it's never to be regained in, in some cases. Precisely. And then there's the third view, which we hold as covenantal Reformed Christians, that you have a category here that our Baptist brothers don't recognize, and that is of people who are in the covenant visibly, but not inwardly united to Christ. And so this is the invisible-visible church distinction. Internal-external. Everyone who's in the visible covenant community has an outward relation to the preaching of the Word, the administration of the sacraments, and discipline. And people make professions of faith, and so long as their lives don't outwardly conflict with their profession of faith, we regard them as believers. But we don't know who is and isn't elect. Yeah, that's right. That's why Paul labors the point in Romans 9 through 11, among other things, that not all who are of Israel are Israel, and God always maintains his electing purposes within the visible covenant. But the covenant, and this is where we disagree with our Baptist friends, the covenant is the means through which God works to bring the elect to saving faith and keep them in that faith. It is not the sum total of those merely who are regenerate. It's a sphere of administration. Right. Now, for me, the key test of this, we go back to the words here, enlightened, taste of the heavenly gift, so forth. I think it's baptism, the Lord's Supper, and the preaching of the word. But we can come back to that. The test of any view, in my estimation, is how it handles verse 9. Though we speak in this way, Yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. Our Calvinistic Baptist brethren have great difficulty talking about people actually falling away who cannot be renewed to repentance. They have lost, well, being enlightened, tasting the heavenly gift, even sharing in the Holy Spirit and tasting the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come. That sounds like a lot that you only get when you're regenerate. And yet, Arminian friends can't make sense of verse 9, when he says, but in your case, beloved, those of you who are believers, it's something quite different because we're convinced of better things of you, things that belong to salvation. So there's something here that belongs to the covenant and is ordinarily means of salvation. But in the case of some who are part of the church outwardly and visibly, it isn't embraced by faith. Yeah, I think that's really good. In order to protect the doctrine of perseverance here by some people, it really takes away from the fact that 
apostasy is so bad because there are such great gifts that are spurned. And that if we simply say, well, these are just things of believers who will never actually apostatize, I think we've lost the whole drama of this passage, which is, no, uh, you who have entered into this covenant community, to this New Testament church, you have received these abundant blessings, and you better pay attention, and you better mix that word that comes to you with faith, or else these very serious consequences are going to come upon you. This is about the reality of administration, that people really are in the visible covenant community and really are participating in the administration of God's salvation, and they are participating in the things through which God sovereignly operates by His Spirit to bring His elect to faith and to participate in that and even to profess faith but to not actually lay hold of it by faith is a great, what should we say, it's a tragedy. It's more than that, though. It's worse than spurning the covenant in the Old Testament. He even says in verse 7, For the land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed and is to be burned. They're not yet beyond all hope. Yeah. There's still time to repent and believe and enter the rest. That's why he hopes better things. He expects better things of this congregation. But what's happening here is the means of grace is falling on them. They're not reprobates in terms of the visible company. They belong to the visible church, and the promises are not null and void. We don't Mm -hmm. believe that the word or the sacraments are made effective by faith. They are God's assured promise regardless of how we respond, but we don't receive the blessings apart from faith. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Jesus' promise is still true that all of the elect have been given to him by the Father. So nothing in this passage changes that. And so it's helpful to compare a difficult passage like this with a fairly clear passage, right? All those whom the Father has given me, no one will snatch them away. So that's a given. Not one. Not one. Nevertheless, there is the reality of administration, and people need to make existential psychological decisions and spiritual decisions, and we don't know as we minister to them and in their midst necessarily who it is. Who's Ishmael and who's Esau, yeah. Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated, but we're not God, so we can't look down the corridors of history and say, well, you're clearly an Ishmael or an Esau, and you're clearly an Isaac. I think it's worth reemphasizing how this analogy in verses 7 and 8 really support the kind of reading that we're giving here, is that that rain falls on good land and bad land. When the rains come, it doesn't discriminate. You know, it only, only falls on the good. It falls on good and bad land. And the whole point is here is not that the rain only comes on one kind of land, mm-hmm. but there's different kind of land that produces different results. For some, it produces a good crop, and other land produces thorns and thistles. Well, And that's Christ's parable of the sower. That's right. And so the the point in verses 4 and 5 is not that these great spiritual eschatological blessings have fallen only on one sort of person, only on the people with faith. No, it's fallen on all sorts of people within this covenant community. And so now sort of this exhortation comes to be those people who bring forth fruit. When you say eschatological, what, what does he mean, Mike? Well, that these are promises that come about in the fullness of time, and they take us ultimately to the consummation. Okay, a simple way. Heavenly realities. Heavenly realities, ultimate realities, which is one of the things that Hebrews is very much interested to say to this congregation, don't go backwards to the sermon illustrations. 
You need to keep looking at the reality, the thing to which the sermon illustrations, meaning Moses, David, Abraham, all those things, all the sacrifices, all the ceremonies, all the The training wheels. They all pointed to Christ, right? Yeah. So eschatological means the last things. And it's not we're not just talking about the things that are when Christ comes again on the last day. The last things involve Christ's coming and Christ entering into that heavenly sanctuary and offering his blood for us and interceding for us and our belonging there even now and participating in the worship of the heavenly kingdom even now. And so one of the points is that the eschatological things, we don't just have to wait until Christ comes again to get those, is that they already belong to us in a very real and powerful way. When we gather for public worship, according to Hebrews, now we're not there yet, but looking ahead, we are participating in that heavenly, eschatological, ultimate reality. And in fact, Hebrews is going to say all of those types and shadows to which these people are being tempted to go back actually worked for and were pointing to these ultimate heavenly realities. Yeah, in fact, I think that's what's so significant about The writer saying in verse 5, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come. This goes exactly to what you guys are talking about, because a lot of us were raised with the idea, as you say, Dave, of eschatology being about what happens in the future. Are you all-mill, post-mill, pre-trib, whatever? This shows us that we have to change our thinking about eschatology. Eschatology is the consummated full realities of the kingdom of God. And here Hebrews is saying it's not just something that is an entirely future reality. Of course, in its consummate form it is. But even now, he says, through word and sacrament— The age to come is breaking in on this present evil age. And in the prophets, especially in Amos, the last days are associated with the pouring out of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. So now we're living in the last days, which means not only that it's just a prelude for the kingdom of God to arrive, but that the kingdom has arrived in the person of Christ. And now, every time we gather, as you say, Scott, we gather for preaching and sacrament, the powers of the age to come— are the benefits, the trinkets, the toys, the gifts that the Holy Spirit is bringing from heaven, won by Christ, and pouring out on us. And that's where I think in the ancient church, there's some debate about this, but enlightened. This was a typical word that was used in the DDK and early Christian documents to refer to baptism. Certainly, tasting the heavenly gift suggests that we're talking about the Lord's Supper. They have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come. And it's significant, tasting. They have tasted the age to come. Again, does your theology have a category that allows these passages to fit? Is there a category in your theology for a person who is baptized— grows up in the church, receives communion, regularly hears the word of God, and even tastes the morsels of the wedding supper, even in some way shares in that corporate work of the Holy Spirit, and yet is not regenerate. Does your theology have a category for that person? Hmm. And without falling into the mistake that some have made of setting up a category whereby everybody is temporarily elect, temporarily united to Christ, temporarily justified, and so forth. You don't have to do that, and you're not doing that, obviously. No, there are no passages for that. Exactly, (laughs) because there just isn't any place. That's not an option. 
Because you, you go back to Paul's distinction in Romans 2 between a Jew who is one outwardly and a Jew who is one inwardly. But Esau really did participate in the life of the church. And God really promised him the same blessings. See, that's the point that Dave yeah, yeah. was making earlier. God's promise is objective. He's making a covenantal promise. But the reprobate reject that promise and God leaves them to their hardness of heart. And ultimately, behind all of that is God's eternal decree. But some people act and seem to think that they can know by looking around who's in God's decree and who's not. And Hebrews is telling us, that's crazy talk. You, You can't think that way. That's not for us to know. For example, I'm thinking of a person who says, well, clearly I'm out. I could never be one of those. I could never be elect. I could never be a Christian. I could never be saved. And that person shouldn't say that because they don't know. Today, Hebrews says, is the day of salvation. All right, one last part of this passage as we wrap up this episode, starting in uh, verse 10, chapter 6. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints, as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who, through faith and patience, inherit the promises. David, how is the author relating the works that he talks about in verse 10 with the faith and patience that he talks about in verse 12? Though chapter 6 begins in a way that kind of provokes these questions, you know, can a true believer lose his salvation? By the time you get here, it keeps building to the end of this chapter, is that you find these beautiful words of assurance and confidence. And I think that's a further indication that the author's not trying to raise questions about sort of security, perseverance issues per se, the way we think of them in systematic theology, because his goal here really is to see these saints through. And it's significant in verse 10 that he recalls their work and their love. And I think that these are people who have shown fruits in the past. They're those that the rain has fallen on them, and they've produced a good crop. And I think this really fits with our understanding as Reformed believers, that those in whom the Spirit works, in whom God has not just given His Word, but has actually worked regeneration and faith and justification, that they do bring forth good works. And, And the reason why he can be confident is precisely because there is that evidence of these better things, these things concerning salvation, and not just the fact that they've been participant in this community. And it's precisely as they persevere, as they cast aside the sluggishness which they've been exhibiting recently, that their assurance will grow and will blossom. God doesn't give assurance to his saints apart from that good fruit which we bear. That's one of the ways, not the only way, but it's one of the ways in which God builds confidence and assurance in his people through the good fruits that we display. And the point that he makes here, as you say, Dave, is not to offer a systematic theological treatment of justification and perseverance, but to say, look, this faith that bears fruit is itself not discernible except by the fruit. And when he says in verse 12, so that you may not be sluggish, but be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises, the means through which you inherit them is faith. And then you think of chapter 11, where every example he's talking about there seems to be an extrapolation of this verse. Here, let me go through the list. Here are all of the people who persevered, kept holding on to the promise, and throughout Hebrews, the exhortation is not do better. The exhortation is not, you know, you will really, you'll really be sure if you're one of the elect if you stop playing cards. His emphasis is go into the promised land. 
hold on. Look to Christ, the author and finisher of your faith, over and over again. And then in chapter 11, every single example he gives for us to imitate is someone we are to imitate because of that person's faith in the promise. And more than that, faith in the God who makes that promise. And that's precisely the problem with the people who are falling away. Those who are apostatizing, he says in verse 6, are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. How so? Well, if they go back to synagogue, if they go back to temple worship, then what they're doing basically is going back to the period in which you had to present the lambs for slaughter, and you brought your own sacrifice for sin, of course, pointing forward to Christ, but now you're not even going back to these sacrifices to point forward to Christ. Bottom line, in the New Covenant, if you go back to the types and shadows of the law, you don't have a Redeemer. You have no Savior. You've now taken yourself entirely out from under the umbrella of the covenant of grace. You're on your own. Now you have no Savior. But people will read this out of context and say, oh, wow, and then I can't even repent if I've fallen away. That's not what it's talking about here. Thanks for listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now to Office Hours in iTunes. Find all the shows at wscal.edu slash officehours. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.